On Halloween 2019, Blackwells were delighted to be hosting a special event exploring black magic with Thomas Waters and Lucy McKnight-Hardy as they discussed their books Cursed Britain, A History of Witchcraft and Black Magic in Modern Times and Watershill Reviews Them. Thomas Waters is a lecturer in history at Imperial College London and a specialist in the modern history of witchcraft and magic. Lucy McKnight-Hardy is a debut author of Watershell Refuse Them, an atmospheric coming-of-age novel full of magical suspense. Hi everyone, welcome. Do appreciate you coming out this evening. I'll give you pretty low marks for fancy dress, to be honest, but uh, <laughs> never mind, Will. <laughs> no, there's a, a gentleman here with a, uh, a green pumpkin on his T-shirt, so, uh, so he... <laughs> so he wins. Um, tonight we're here to talk about magic in fact and magic in fiction and we'd like to explore what magic is, why it appeals to people, why people are drawn towards it, why it continues to charm and chime uh, with people in, uh, in the modern world and whether, this is a controversial point, whether it's, whether it's appeals growing so I'll kick off, Thomas. Um, this is a wonderful book. Um, and you say in the introduction that it's taken you more than 10 years to write. So more than a decade has gone into this. Um, so I'm guessing you're pretty sick of witches by now. <laughs> um, so why, what was the fascination for you personally? Why were you drawn to this very in-depth study of black magic and witchcraft? Yes, it, it did take a long time, Lucy. In fact, you're very kindly understating how long it took me to write this uh, awful tome. Um, it's based on more than 15 years' research. Yes, that's right. I know, oh dear, somebody said, and that's so true. F 15 years. Uh, my family and friends, I think, were coming to the conclusion that I was a fantasist, that I uh, wasn't actually writing a book and that it would never be done and I, I never had a, a publishing deal. But it did eventually come out. And yes, it took all, it, it, it took all the time. I could explain later why, why it took all, all that time. Uh, initially, what drew me to witchcraft was that it was something that I hadn't experienced or had any contact with before. It was something totally alien and totally different to... Um, I suppose my way of thinking. I didn't. I wasn't sort of brought up in an esoteric household or in a religious household. I suppose I'm a kind of instinctive sceptic. So when I was at university and I became, uh, I was studying history as an undergraduate. I was very sort of drawn to the Victorian period. I'm very fascinated by the Victorian period and was uh, studying in some depth the political history of the Victorian period. You know the acts of parliament and you know sort of discussions about the constitution and the nature of reform and that sort of thing and then one summer I was um, uh, summer between my second and my third year I was sort of trying to work out a, a topic that I'd write my dissertation on my piece of original research and um, before I went on holiday I thought I'll take a bit of reading about the Victorian period and I've got a little diary um, an abridged diary from the Victorian period it's by a guy called Francis Kilvert who was a clergyman that lived on the Welsh border and I was expecting sort of, you know, your typical Victorian stuff about, um, you know, sort of debates about politics and evolution and the sort of uh, the growth and expansion of the churches. And I was shocked by what I found in this diary, because in this diary, I, I found details of villagers who thought they'd seen apparitions and ghosts of people who just died appearing on the road running towards them. 
and I found references to people that were trying to do spells and harm their enemies by oh, all sorts of ghastly things with toads. Um, this is not very nice for you know animal lovers, but you know, sort of baking toads in the oven and sort of impaling them and starving them to death <laughs> under glass and all sorts of ghastly things like this. Basically, I, um, while I was an undergraduate, I came into contact with this really rich world of folk magic which presented a very different side to Victorian England than I'd seen. And it's something that I continued to research um, as a master's student here in Oxford and as a doctoral student. And then the natural thing to do would have been to sort of have brought out um, an academic book on that topic. And I almost did that. I was kind of tempted to, to do that. But I had a change of heart shortly after I finished my graduate studies because I, my first um, first decent job was as a lecturer at Leeds University and I was living in Sheffield at the time with my family. I was travelling up and down to Leeds University and this um, strange thing happened to me on the train. I was reading in the back of the metro, you know, the free newspaper. I was reading it in the adverts and there was an advert for a curse remover. Somebody that's, yeah, <laughs> it's it's a lucrative industry. I'm not this is not careers advice here, by the way, but, you know, there, there are people that do this. And in, and if you read my book, I think a growing number of people that do this sort of thing nowadays. I came across this advert for a chap uh, living in Leeds that was going to provide solutions for people who had problems with their love life, who had weird illnesses that couldn't be dealt with or couldn't be uh, effectively dealt with by the medical profession, people who had immigration problems, all sorts of stuff like that. And he said, you know, or do you feel you're cursed? You can come to me, 100% success rate, that kind of thing. And I was just shocked by how basically the kind of things that this guy was offering to do was very similar to the sort of things that magicians and others were offering to do in the Victorian period. So I thought, clearly, I, I can't just sort of write a book about magic in the Victorian period and just sort of stop it in some arbitrary way because, you know, magic's still an important part of contemporary life. And that's what I wanted to show in my book was both the rich tradition of folk magic in the Victorian era and then how magic has persisted and changed and even grown in the contemporary period. And that's that's the sort of short answer for why it took so long as well. I think as well, your book, you don't really touch on the 15th, 16th, 17th centuries, the times of mm. what, what we know as the times of the witch hunts, because so much has been written about that before, presumably. Yes, that's right. Yes, there's uh, the sort of enormous libraries worth of books, and there's some absolutely stunning and excellent books on witchcraft in the period of the witch trials in, you know, sort of roughly the late 1400s to the early 1700s in Europe. Um, but yes, I wanted to show that, uh, that witchcraft and magic continue to resonate today. And it's not as if it's just a kind of a lingering afterthought from the period of the witch trials. I think that if, if anything, you know, in the last 30 or 40 years, esoteric, mystical ways of thinking, they've, um, I don't know, they've gained a new relevance or they've, they've revived somewhat. I, I think so. I think as well you show in your book the, the later chapters dealing with um, up to the modern day. Um, they're quite chilling in some respects. Um, the, I think possibly because talking about contemporary times, it's obviously a lot closer to us as people. Um, but also there's a lot to do with children being yeah. accused of witchcraft. How was that? How did you feel writing that? Oh, uh, it's, um, you know, it's, it's harrowing to... Uh, Herring to describe the, you know, it's what's known in the specialist literature as child spiritual abuse. Um, basically, it, in the late 20th century, the stereotype of the typical witch seems to have changed in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, hitherto, it was primarily uh, women and older women, not only, that were accused. And 
it's, it's still a bit of a murky topic. We still don't know exactly when or why, but children start to be accused of being witches. I, sh- I should say it's not completely unique to Africa. That did in the most sort of feverish points in the period of the witch hunts. There were children that were accused of being witches as well in, in Europe um, back in the period of the witch trials. But um, yeah, that children began to be accused of witchcraft and that actually, that happens in, uh, in, in Britain nowadays. The... Uh, and that has terrible consequences. Some of the people that are accused of witchcraft are just, you know, they're sort of beaten up and harmed and killed and driven from their homes, that kind of things. But more usual is that uh, the families of people who come to believe that their children are witches or are possessed or kind of manifest an evil power that sort of emanates out from them and harms others, they will try and exercise their children. And these exorcisms uh, occur in lots of different traditions. Uh, they'll often be involve a kind of in, often involve pain, the idea that pain has a purifying power that you can drive out the evil force, you know, sort of rub chili in someone's eye or, you know, cut them or s- punch them or, you know. Um, so it, it's, uh, it's a terrible phenomenon, but I think, it, I think we need to look, uh, look at the phenomena of uh, child spiritual abuse in the face because we still haven't got to grips with the scale of it across the world and in Britain today. In recent years, the Department of Education has started to try and collect figures for the number of cases of traumatic exorcisms that occur annually. And the last year that there were figures for um, that have been released is 2017 to 18. And for England and Wales, there were, I think it was 1,630 cases were recorded across the country of um, child spiritual abuse. But that's four and a half a day. Um, but that's probably underestimating the scale of the problem because some local authorities, some police forces don't actually record this, um, these kind of events um, the, at all. Um, so I think it's, uh, it's a terrible phenomenon, but we underestimate the scale of it and we still need to do more, firstly, to document how widespread it is and secondly, to try and come up with a solution, a way we can, um, a way we can deal with this. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's, uh, it's, it's, but it's, um, it's, it's sad not to be able to end my book, really, which is, you know, history of the dark side of magic since the early 1800s. It's, not, it's sad in a way not to be able to end it in an optimistic way that these kind of troubling and traumatic and potentially abusive ideas that they haven't died out and that they're not, I don't think we can sort of assume that they actually are going to uh, die out. I, I, I think, you know, some... It's, it's all too easy to kind of cling to these complacent ideas that as we become more educated, as we lead more comfortable lives, then these sort of notions will trouble people less. And I, I don't think that's the case, actually. I think it's, um, I think it's far more mysterious uh, why people turn towards magic, why they start to entertain the idea that their troubles and misfortunes might have some sort of mystic mm-hmm. origin. Um, and that's something that I, I think that's a well, is that I mean, in a way a consolation for them, though, so they don't have to address the real issues? Is it a bit of a cop-out, do you think, to say this, all these awful things are happening because I've been cursed or hexed? I think, think it's a natural human, part of the human condition? Well, I think it's both. You know, I think that plausibly, as humans, we've evolved to, if not believe in religion and magic, then at least to kind of recognise... Um, and understand in a sort of quite an intuitive way religion and magic. I know evolutionary psychology is a controversial discipline, but I think given, you know, if you look at magic, how basic magic ide- magical ideas are pretty similar across 
all of the world and throughout history. I think this suggests that, you know, maybe they've got some sort of basis in the sort of cognitive architecture of the human mind that in the ancestral environment, humans evolved. The people who believed in magic maybe got some sort of competitive advantage and, you know, that, that kind of these ideas perpetuated themselves. So these ideas do come easily to us. But at the same time, you, you know, you said it's just, it provides a kind of consolation. And I, I think that's how magic really works in the modern world, at least the people that I study. Um, you, you know, I don't know about anyone here, but, you know, there's probably not many people here would think that their misfortunes and problems could be caused by a curse. You probably think that's quite a silly idea, quite an implausible idea, a fantasy, the kind of thing that you would never believe. And it's, that's, you know, what I think. But I've got something to say about that. That's what the people who I study in Cursed Britain thought as well. They thought that witchcraft and magic and curses was nonsense. They thought that they could never believe in it. They thought that until they did. Until things started happening that they couldn't deal with in the normal way. You know, they got ill. Their children got ill. They went to the doctors. But the doctors couldn't provide a cure. They fell out with their partners, with their spouses. They tried to be nice. They tried to, you know, bring things back together, but it didn't work. Their animals fell ill. They called in the vets and the farriers, you know, the people who deal with horses. Um, but it didn't work again. And this way of thinking, this way of trying to, of, of imagining that your, you know, seemingly ordinary misfortunes have a mystic cause, um, it, I think it does come out of frustration and desperation when you, at least in the modern period, when you've tried everything else, it's almost like people will themselves to believe in this. And I don't, I don't know, Lucy, that's, I, I felt that was a, a theme that you were touching on in, um, in your novel as well, that there's something consoling. There's, um, yes, exactly. The, um, the protagonist, the narrator, for those who haven't read it, she's a 16-year-old girl. Um, her, she, the book opens with her and her parents and her little brother, Laurie, going to stay in a rented cottage on the Welsh borders um, to try and get some meaning back to their lives after the accidental death of Laurie's twin sister. Um, so there's, it's, they're besotted with grief, um, or beset with grief, I should say. And because of this, Nif tries to instill some meaning in her life and she comes up with her own belief system she calls the creed. And she does say the creed found me, but it is, it's, it's a form of her finding a new sense of meaning and a way of um, putting order onto her life after Petra's death and after she and her mother have renounced their Catholicism. So it's almost as though, as humans, we need something to believe in, whether that is one of the established religions, whether it's some form of black magic, whether it's some form of um, belief system we create ourselves. So, yes, I think there's, there's something It's there. sort of, yeah, it came out of these troubles that she was struggling to cope with yes. and there was a certain consolation. Yeah. Do you think, um, in that sense, do you think, do you think anything can, positive can come from believing in magic or do you think it's something that always, that, you know, is fundamentally is a, is a harmful mindset? I think, it, I think a lot of that depends on your definition of magic. Your, um, I think your really lovely, beautifully concise, um, one of your sentences you use is it's um, a way of causing mystic interpersonal harm. And it's that use of the word harm. If it's hmm. set out deliberately to cause harm to people then obviously I don't think that's a good thing but in a way that it can console people 
that it can give people a purpose in life when they may have otherwise have lost it, then I think it's possibly an enabler of, of good. Mm. Yeah, I found this, this, I guess this is the most uh, controversial thing about the whole topic, really, you know, so if you imagine at one extreme, you'd have, uh, you know, like a kind of Richard Dawkins interpretation of magic, which is that it's all negative, it's all misleading, it's false, and, you know, Richard, you know, he's got that book on weaving the rainbow, Um, Richard Dawkins' idea was that, would be that um, you shouldn't even have... uh, you know, stories with mystical and magical themes, you know, because they kind of cultivate, uh, I don't know, degraded ways of thinking, you know, so no more, no more Lord of the Rings for you, never mind uh, uh, L- Lucy's novel and whatnot. Um, I think that's, that's quite an extreme position and, you know, part of the value of magic. I, I think probably the least controversial area where you can see magic as being something valuable is in the realm of storytelling. Mm. What what do you think it is about magical stories, particularly that really chime with people? And I think it would have to have something to do with escapism, um, something to do with the the need to find out what's behind the door. There's always wanting to know what's on the other side. Mm. I mean, um, people are fascinated by an afterlife, and also by questions of good and evil. Yeah. So I think witchcraft kind of encapsulates that. All those, all those things that people are fascinated by. I think as well, there's a strange dichotomy in the the glamour that can be attached to witchcraft. Mm. Um, in your book, you you make the point that um, there's this stereotype of the old crone witch, but in actual fact, I think the example you give is um, towards the end of the Victorian time, the average age of women accused of witchcraft was 55. So it's um, kind of it's a stereotype that's not necessarily um, borne out by reality, mm. and I think at the other end of the spectrum, there's um, this idea of witches just being a little bit, a bit sexy and a bit glamorous. Yeah, I mean, I bet out tonight in Oxford in fancy dress, there'll be a lot of sexy witches. Sure, there will. There. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I think it's it's th- that thing of the unobtainable. Um, I think it's also a, a question of power. There are lots of um, questions around witches having power over men specifically mm. and a lot of the witch hunts i think were possibly um instigated by this fear that men had that the women who practiced witchcraft were more powerful than them i must admit the kind of relationship of witchcraft with gender was the thing that i struggled to explain the most in my book and i think i was least you know shouldn't be uh confessing my limitations here as an author but I think I, the thing that I found the most difficult in the period of the witch trials about 90% of people that were accused of witchcraft in Britain were women and that remained the case throughout the Victorian period in the Victorian period there were hundreds of people that were oh I don't know denounced in their towns and villages as witches they ended up getting attacked or having their neighbours throwing dirt in their face or coming to beat them up or, you know, just, just to abuse them in the street or sometimes to rich, ritually attack them. They sort of, neighbours, they felt they were bewitched and you were really desperate and you tried all sorts of remedies. You'd, you'd grab hold of the person that you thought was responsible and, you know, take a pin or a knife or a nail from your pocket and scratch them. Sorry about that. That was quite a dramatic sound. Um, scr- scratch them across the forehead and the action of drawing the witch's blood was thought to uh, break the spell. Anyway, the, predominantly these 
um, these sort of dreadful vigilante um, attacks were directed at, at women. And it was something that I struggled to explain. And, and I, I think you're right. I think it does have a sort of strange kind of connection with uh, female sexuality of kind of fear and at the same time awe of female sexuality. It's a very, very difficult subject to study witchcraft because people are very, um, very reticent to speak about it. You know that one, speak of the devil and he'll appear and all that. You know, it's very hard to find sources on this topic and people are very guarded about what they say. Well, it's even more difficult to try and study the kind of the contribution that, um, I don't know, sexuality would make to witchcraft in the Victorian period, right? You can imagine there's just, um, they're almost, um, you know, the Victorians were very reluctant to, to sort of, uh, to record their beliefs about the um, amazing activities of, of, of witches, you know, cavorting naked and, you know, doing all sorts of uh, involved in orgies and all that kind of thing. You, you know, any of you that studied witchcraft in the period of the witch trials will know that's the kind of thing witches were accused of. And there are little hints that they were accused of that in the Victorian period as well, or people, mm. but it's quite hard to find, find you it. You say in your book, because newspaper um, coverage of it was very limited by what they could and mm. would print. So um, how did that affect your research? Obviously, it's a very, very well-researched book. You've spent all this many, many years on it. Yeah. Um, what were your prime sources of information? Well, the book starts and ends with two cases that are incredibly well-documented, and that's very unusual for this topic, as I say, because it's you know not something that people want to talk about. People are embarrassed about it. People And people above all, I think, people have an eerie feeling that if you kind of say words to do with witchcraft, if you if you even speak about witches, that sometime somehow it'll it, it might make these bad things happen to you. Or at least that's you know people who really believe in this kind of thing. And I think you actually touch on that in your novel as well. I think uh, I think one of the characters has a a feeling about if she says the words or you know says something out she, loud. Yeah, she has a, what she calls the incantation. Yeah. So her form, her belief system is um, what she calls the creed, is based around a collection of um, birds, eggs and bones that she discovers um, in the months after her little sister's death. And she comes up with an incantation um, which she recites, hoping that it will um, give her memories of the exact circumstances in which her daughter mm died so yes it's the power of words isn't it yes in, indeed and, and those words are very elusive very private so the sources that i use uh you know very varied you have, you have to try and piece together a picture of this topic by you know looking at it from lots of different angles from different sources uh, newspaper reports of extraordinary events medical records religious texts folklore records but the two sources that were most valuable and they kind of bookend the book um they described the experiences of uh, two people who thought they were cursed or came to believe they were cursed in great depth. Um, one of the guys was living in the very early 1800s and the other guy is still alive today. Um, and it describes his experiences in the early 2000s. He's a bloke um, that lives in Devon. And, and those two sources, they were quite exceptional because um, the first one was a, was a clergyman, he was an Anglican clergyman, he was a very wealthy man, he was sort of like a member of the gentry, you know, kind of living in basically Jane Austen's England, um, you know, sort of inherited some lands in Sunderland. Very well-educated man, he'd been here, um, I think he'd been to, he was a graduate of Lincoln College and he was a fellow at an Oxford College and he'd become a clergyman down south in Dorset, in a little village in Dorset, called Turner's or Toner's Puddle, depending on how you spell it. And he was someone, you know, like I was saying that, you know, Everyone thinks witchcraft's nonsense until they don't. 
he was someone that didn't believe in witchcraft. He was a guy called William Ettrick, uh, Reverend William Ettrick, and he moved to a village and he needed to get some help. He needed some help around his house, help with his gardens, help to look after his children. And he hired a servant, a servant called Susan Woodford. And the villagers, his parishioners, told him not to do it. They said, you know, be careful, sir. Uh, things happen to people who cross Susan Woodford. She's a witch. Anyway, he, uh, things did happen to him. He, he thought it was nonsense. He ignored all this. He hired this woman, but... Um, Things did start to happen, and he recorded it all in his diary, basically. So he's got this really extensive diary. It was thought lost for very many years. Um, there were a few extracts that had been kept and been published by some obscure local history society, but the diary was thought lost. But thankfully, I managed to track it down, and it was in um, the Sunderland Antiquarian Society uh, and also in the Tynanweir Record Office. And this diary describes at great length how this man came to after being a complete sceptic about witchcraft, when things started to go wrong, when his horse fell ill, when his crops started to rot, when his child fell ill and he couldn't solve these problems in a normal way, he eventually came to the conclusion that he was cursed and he wrote it all down in his diary and it's a, a huge, enormous source and it, it makes for, an, I think, quite an incredible story. Um, so that's, that, that's one of the sources and then it's sort of uh, got all sorts of, as I say, these varied documents and then it goes... Um, the last... Uh, kind of case study, the last story in my book relates to this chap I was telling you about who lives in Devon, who's still with us and who believed that he and his family had been attacked by a curse. And he recorded his experiences in an enormous document. It's a sort of 150-page document where he describes everything that happened to him, when it happened, exactly when it happened. Uh, the only thing he doesn't describe or doesn't detail are the words of the curse. You know, so he's got sort of 150 pages, all sorts of pictures, details of, you know, he tried to kind of take this issue to the police and to the local clergyman and all these people. You might not be surprised to learn this. All these people thought he was a bit of a nutcase. Um, they were sceptical at any rate. Anyway, he wrote all this stuff down, but he wouldn't write down the exact words that were used against him by the man who thought had cursed him. And I think that speaks to the power of the word here and how it's... You know, it's quite scary, quite terrifying, or, or can be. Yeah. Um, yeah. Lucy, um, can I ask about your inspiration for your book, please? Yes, well, it's funny. Our books are both very different, but they have a common thread in that they both come about as part of academic <laughs> studies. So I wrote my book as my dissertation for an MA in creative writing. So um, I basically had to get it done mm. I, had, I had a deadline a, a kind of enforced deadline um, and I had this idea for a story about a young girl and a family um, suffering from grief and this idea that she develops her own belief system but I felt the book needed a bit more depth um, and some sort of historical mm. hook to hang things on um, and just at a very opportune moment when I was struggling with where this book was going to go, I got an email from my mum. And I think the subject was just, ha ha, you're like this. And it was a link to a newspaper article in the Welsh media. And it was an article about the minister who was attached to our chapel in our village. Um, we grew up, this is my sister, we grew up in a, a very small, very rural Welsh village. Um, in the house next to the chapel. So even though we weren't chapel goers, we were very conscious of all these comings and goings at the chapel. 
And so um, this newspaper article covered the publication of the autobiography of the minister who was attached to the chapel, in which he claimed to have been called out to conduct exorcisms in the villages around where we grew up. So that was kind of like a bit of a magnet to me. Mm. Okay, so this is what's going on. So that's that's kind of the, the spark that um, that's why there is this element of witchcraft and historical witchcraft in my book. I don't want to pry too much, although maybe I do, uh, into your uh, particular background, but I enjoyed some of the details and the references to witchcraft in your book for instance you write about witch marks which are sometimes called daisy foils or hexafoils there's a little tip for you in case you want to uh, uh, defend yourself from malign occult powers you can employ ritual markings which uh, lucy refers to in her mm. books uh, where did you learn about those i have not i would love to come into contact with them personally but i mm. haven't that was um through i think there was a newspaper article yeah about some new ones that had been discovered that were notable because of their age. Mm. So that's what gave me the inspiration for that. Yeah. Yes, it's, uh, it's, it's a fascinating topic, the, um, the archaeology of, of counter-witchcraft. It's a burgeoning subject. There's a great book by an archaeologist called Brian Hoggard uh, that's come out. You, you get all these incredible things, basically. It's, uh, uh, Brian Hoggard, I think it's called Magical House Protection. If you've got an old house and you've ever found... A cat behind the wall. A horse's skull beneath the flagstone. Lots of circles with, look like a flower, I guess, with six little ellipses inside the, the circles. Maybe just burn marks on the timbers, or what looks like a W, but really is two Vs like that. Even the humble spoon can form, can act as a type of magical protection. And You know, I get very excited about an apotropaic spoon. Um, apotropaic means evil repelling anyway there's this there's this huge amount can you just tell us how you repel evil using a spoon I'm fascinated simply brick it up in the wall that's all you need to do i came i came across one case i came across a recent case with any uh, literary reference to it somebody had put it in the back of their oven in somerset in the early 1800s you know they, they had a bakery basically and they were trying to stop the bread from being bewitched and going stale and that kind of thing so there's a little tip here for any bakers among you if you're finding that your bread isn't rising you know it, it may be that malign forces at work and, and an apotropaic spoon might, might well be the solution anyway there's this uh, which Lucy obviously refers, as I said, to the um, um, to, uh, to 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 the witch marks, but there's this there's this enormous and rich folklore uh, that relates to being defending yourself from evil magic, and it's just begun to be studied in a serious way now. It's it's amazing historical evidence actually, because there's there's often um, there's never really a written account to explain why somebody thought that you know a cat bricked up in the wall or a spoon or something like that, or, or shoes were put in roofs, all this kind of thing to explain why. So, you, you know, to try and get a sense of, you know, what people are trying to do, you've kind of got to intuit it a bit and, you know, kind of got get on the level of, uh, you know, of, of, of people who thought that mystic forces were swirling all around and, uh, you know, uh, yeah, um, making the, making themselves known. Uh. Um, one other question I had for you. This, uh, you are an academic, you're a historian, and it is an academic book, but it's very accessible yeah. and... One of the reasons for that, I think, is that um, it's anecdotal. You use real people in the stories and it's full of anecdotes about everyday people. Um, 
first question from that is, do you have a favourite anecdote you'd like to relate? And maybe once you've done that, you could give us some thoughts about whether you might try your hand at writing fiction at any point. <laughs> uh, thank you. I, oh, there's so many, uh, so many lovely stories from the book. I mean, what I was trying to do above all was um, trying to evoke what it feels like to think that you're cursed. You know, as I see it, coming to that conclusion that, you know, that it's being cursed, that these mystical powers are on you, that's the heart of this subject. That's the heart of the history of witchcraft. And you've got to try and... I, th I think any book about this subject is, is kind of failing, really, if it doesn't convey that, how somebody who didn't believe ended up becoming a believer. Because, as I said, that, you know, many of the people I've studied in my book were sceptics until, until they weren't. So I was trying to sort of evoke and convey that which is that's why it's written in the way it is and the sort of um anecdotal um it's a mixture of kind of more sweeping history and individual case studies the stories that i like in the book um they include the mishaps of uh, a, a scottish woman called uh, catherine mcgowan who lived on um uh, the 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 wee the wee isle as it's called um, of uh, Giza or Gia. Um, it's just off the Mull of Kintyre. It's uh, one of the most southerly of the Western Isles in Scotland. And in the 1860s, she was kind of quite a well-off uh, woman on this island. She was a farmer's wife, and they were they were kind of like fairly upstanding in this island. This this was an island where a lot of people were had very hard lives, and you know, kind of lived in. Um, Oh, I don't know, you know, had peat fires and, you know, didn't have proper roofs on the houses. She had a nice, big, substantial farmhouse. And basically her neighbours ended up deciding she was a witch and they were spreading a story around the place that she had incredible powers, including the ability to transform into a hare. So she could run around and sow all her mischief. And it sounds a bit silly. Uh, it, it sounds just like, uh, you know, an inconsequential aspersion. But it wasn't because... Catherine, when she uh, she got a bit sick of this story, people were telling it again and again all over the island. It was making it hard for her to, you know, to deal with her friends. And she ended up trying to sue the people um, who who spread this spread this story. And it's uh, it's an incredible tale, really, about the the sort of fantastical things that witches were accused mm -hmm. of. So uh, so that would be my uh, that would be one of my favourite stories, as well as the the tale I was telling you earlier on about this clergyman William Ettrick, who wasn't a witchcraft believer until he was. And regarding fiction, um, well, it's tempting. I'd I'd say that you know yes, I'd like to do some writing that didn't involve uh, fifteen years research, but but on the other hand, I, de I dare say I would yeah. I dare say it's equally agonising with uh, with the writing of fiction. Would you be tempted to write non-fiction about, uh, about this to topic, Lucy? I don't think I could compete, quite honestly. I think, um, I think you've got it sewn up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Um, well, I think, I think I'll, I'll, I'm better, um, better fitted, better suited towards fiction. Yeah. Um, and just making things up rather than um, <coughs> being faithful to history. Yeah. Do you um, do you feel that uh, you know the zeitgeist is more respe more receptive to magical stories and magical thinking nowadays? Um, that you know, do you think there's more demand for folk horror and the um, the, t the type of book that you're you're writing? Yeah, I've done quite a few events recently which have talked about folk horror, hmm. 
and there's also been quite a lot I've seen in the media, um, radio programme just this afternoon on Radio 4. Um, I think there's an interest in it, because there is a growth in nature writing as well, and it's uh, this kind of... Um, people being more in tune with their environment, I think mm. possibly folk horror, um, and the fascination people have for it stem from that. Um, I think also it goes hand in hand with the climate crisis and people are seeing what's happening mm. to the earth. And um, it's kind of... It's, it's scary. Yeah, it kind of resonates together somehow, yeah, doesn't it? The concern so. for the natural world with, so, uh, yeah. with, with magic. And I, I struggle to pin it down exactly how, but they're... Uh, you know, it, it's, there seems to be uh, seems to be a relationship there. Yeah, I suppose um, paganism would come mm. into it. I mean, I know your book is more concerned with black magic. Yeah, but obviously, um, paganism and you know, respect for the earth mm. is another form of of magic in a way. Mm. Um, <laughs> so, uh, if I hope you don't mind if I uh, just just change tack slightly, we're here in the mother of all. Blackwells, with all these wonderful books around, I'm sure that everyone here is a book lover. Uh, could, could I ask a little bit about the, um, you know, the books that you really love or that were the inspiration mm. or perhaps sort of took you in this direction of writing a, a folk horror book about witchcraft in the 1970s? Um, a book that was really influential to me when I was writing my book was The Loney by Andrew Michael Hurley. Um, and it came along at a point when I was struggling with mine. I was struggling to get the tone right because I had a, a teenage protagonist and it was almost coming across as young adult fiction. Mm. Um, it's very difficult to write a book for adults with a child narrator. Um, and then The Lonely came along, which has a... I think he's 15, the narrator in that. And also, it just happens to be set in the 70s. Um, I'd already decided mine was going to be set during that heat wave, so mm. um, he didn't inspire me in that way. But the, the tone of the book and the way he managed to um, have a child's voice, which also managed to convey this slightly ominous tone, that was very influential to me. Um, I also love writers like Shirley Jackson. Mm. She's um, always good for a bit of dark horror. It w it was inspired to set your book in the heat wave, and so much of your book happens outside as well. That seems right, yeah. quite, you know, quite a, quite original, really, in the that, genre. That was my approach. I really wanted to subvert this kind of horror story set in a, you know, a windy castle or out on a, mm. you know, a windswept moor. So I thought, what's well, what's the opposite you can have of that? And it's a heat wave, and I just liked the idea of this oppressive heat bearing down on people in the atmosphere and I deliberately put them in a valley which acts like a crucible mm. for them and I think once you put characters take them out of their environment and put them into a very difficult environment they start you can make them start doing things out of character and interesting things and that way the plot kind of tends to tick along by itself mm. you just keep poking your characters and see what they do in a given circumstances. Yes, uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely fascinating setting and, uh, well, a very, uh, very macabre one as, as well. I hope, I hope you didn't experience uh, similar things in, in your upbringing in, uh, in Wales. I didn't, no. I mean, the, the actual location is 
split. It's a, a combination of the village where we grew up and a house I lived in in Yorkshire. Mm. So the house is actually the house we lived in in Yorkshire. And that helps when you're a writer to actually have the floor plans in your head because you're working from something concrete and it's, um, it's not as easy then to make slip-ups in continuity and things. Um, but it is very much based on, on um, where I grew up. And um, I was born in 1972, so I would have been four during the heat wave. Mm. So I do have some elusive memories of it. Um, the, just, just being lying in the sun, being unable to move. The, uh, the, the creed, the kind of in, the sort of invented and improvised witchcraft that um, the protagonist in your novel creates is quite macabre, mm. I'd say, and you can sort of understand how it emerges, you know, as a sort of a psychological coping mechanism mm. almost. Mm. Do you think, it's, I'm sorry if this is too much of a stupid question, but is it, is it all negative, that, um, that way of thinking that emerges for your protagonist? Is there, has it got any positive aspects to it? Or, you know, can thinking magically in that way be positive? Yeah, I think for her it is very positive because it mm. gives her reason after the death of her, her sister. It gives her um, something to... It gives her a purpose in life, yeah. essentially. And she's also caring for her younger brother because their mother has had um, a, a, a breakdown. And so she's taken on this role of carer as well. So she needs something that is just for her. Mm. And then she she develops or comes up with this, this creed based around these relics she finds, these birds' mm. um, bones and eggs. And it's when she shares that with the other character in the book, with Mally, yeah. who is almost her antagonist, um, that's when things start to go wrong for her. So maybe yeah. it is a case of, like you say, don't speak the words. Yeah. I mean, I found that was one of the most difficult things with my work on witchcraft in the modern period, is kind of drawing the line between where magic's uh, clearly negative and where you know it's kind of ambiguous on where it might be helpful for people. Now, obviously, it's clearly negative if it's inspiring bullying and abuse. It's clearly negative if it's massively fraudulent and costs a fortune. But I was... I was ambivalent about people going to magicians to curse removers, people who offer to remove witchcraft. You know, when if they're not charging too much, I kind of felt from looking at what went on with a curse removal therapy that it, it could have helped people going through terrible misfortunes to kind of almost to cope with them, like a kind of, that it acted like a cryptic form of therapy. Um, people were asked, people who are going through um, curse removal therapies were asked to detail all the problems that they were experiencing to lay them out in sort of intricate depth, which is, in some ways, it kind of overlaps a bit with some approaches in cognitive behavioural therapy today, where you're supposed to sort of describe all the things that are troubling you, and they kind of feel less bad and less oppressive if you can vocalise them all, be very sincere about it. And also, I think the act of belief and faith, it, it can help people who are suffering from things that are difficult to cope with. Um, it's a very... Uh, controversial area of research but since the 1990s there's been some a great deal of work actually into the relationship between spirituality and mental health care one of the findings is that people who are religious who have a spirituality tend not in all cases but tend to suffer less from mental ill health and depression than people who don't have spirituality and faith and i wondered with some of these curse removal therapies which were all about asking the clients you've got to have faith you're going to get better you've got to believe and it was about cultivating that faith if they might have kind of helped people even though you know you can see that the negative sides if this stuff's really expensive or if it's misleading or you know i i, I found it quite 
difficult really to come to the view about you know where's the good and where's mm-hmm. the bad here and I well I you know I in, in some ways I wasn't trying to be too dogmatic about that in the book just to raise these questions and I think I suppose it comes down to people's motivations for, for doing it mm. if they're there to exploit people in order to make money then obviously that's um, a very bad reason for doing it but if they genuinely seek to help people mm. then and there's likely to be a mix of motives you know some yeah. some money you know when 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 is it charging too much and I don't know perhaps we should uh, invite questions from the audience on yes, these uh, on, yeah. on on these topics whether you uh, uh, you can very welcome to ask about anything including about the, uh, the you know the merits of, of magic today um, sir I was just curious whether you found that the people who were actually torturing and executing the witches truly believed that they were witches. Mm. Surely that at some point they realised you could torture somebody into saying anything. But yeah. Um, they, uh, they did believe at those moments. They hadn't always believed. The people who in the 19th century went and ritualistically attacked witches, they went and stabbed them and, you know, and scratched them or, you know, went and tried to swim them in the pond. They didn't believe, but then they kind of built themselves up, built themselves up into a frenzy, convinced themselves that actually their diverse problems that were sort of insurmountable and seemed to be crushing that, um, that they were a result of witchcraft. And yes, they, at that moment, they sincerely believed. It's, it's, a, it's a bit more of a, it's a bit harder to answer that question when it comes to um, the professional magicians. They were called cunning folk or wise men, wise women. They're called pellers in Cornwall. Comes from repeller, like repelling magic. Did those people and do those people, curse removers that opposite, operate today, do they really, really believe in the reality of magic? I think they, a lot of those people understand the way faith operates. They understand that you've got a kind of will yourself to believe and force yourself to believe. So they kind of force themselves to believe in the moment, but then they could be very cynical and, you know, really, really change their minds. Um, so so it, it varied ultimately. That's the thing about, uh, you know, there's this dynamic of faith and scepticism within magic and, you know, it just depends which one's ascendant and which one isn't at any particular time. So that also causes me to ask questions again around power mm. and about how a lot of these women who were persecuted for being witches were seen as being a bit different. Mm. Um, they they just weren't accepted into the community in a lot of cases. And they were persecuted because of that. But also, I heard, or I read something about communities using these um, these abilities to, to um, accuse someone of witchcraft as a means of gaining hold of these women's property. Mm. So that I think there were nefarious reasons as well as purely just reasons of belief. Yeah, I, I mean, that, that that would happen around the world today. It's, it's not so much, uh, that wasn't a strategy in the period that I studied, but that's certainly in the earlier period yeah. and in some places in the world today, yes, uh, yeah, yeah, definitely accuse your rivals of, mm. uh, you know, in just a very, very cynical way yeah. as uh, as well. But, yeah, um, yeah yes, mm. a- absolutely. Um, y- yes, madam. I'll bid you a safe Halloween. Remember to employ your apotropaic spoons. Yeah. <laughs> Take care. Thank you very much for coming out Thank tonight, you. everyone. It was lovely to see you all. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Blackwells Presents. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at, at BlackwellsOxford. Check out our YouTube page at, at BlackwellsBook and see what exciting events we have coming up in the bookshop on our Eventbrite page.